Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and as ever, thanks very much for joining us today. I just finished talking with Shellen Wu about her new book, Empires of Coal, Fueling China's Entry into the Modern World Order, 1860 to 1920. This came out just this year in 2015 with Stanford University Press. One of the reasons I was so excited to do this particular interview is that the book is really situated at the intersection of a number of different fields of history that don't always talk to each other and don't always talk to each other productively. So it's contributing to the history of global industrialization, global history, especially in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It's also contributing significantly to studies of modern China, especially modern China insofar as we are bringing together the Qing Dynasty and the Republican period into the same story, and it's contributing to the histories of science and technology, both locally and on a global world scale. It's a really interesting story that takes our hand and leads us through um, this narrative from the late 19th century where German engineers and scientists and explorers, among others, are coming into China, Uh, missionaries are coming into China, they are mapping things, they are translating things, they are writing about things, they're writing letters, they're writing treatises, they're digging things, they're owning things, they are um, employing people to do things for them. And it guides us from that to a story about what happens once the Qing starts to try to really um, take control over what's happening in terms of a larger global conversation about mining, coal, natural resources, exploitation, and China. There are moments of this story that are really interesting from the perspective of law and legal history, and there are moments that are interesting from the perspective of lots of other fields that you'll hear about in the hour to come. So I'll let you get right to it, and I'll just say thank you, um, as ever, for listening. Thanks for um, coming to the channel, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I'm here today to talk with Shellen Wu about her new book, Empires of Coal. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Shellen, and thanks very much both for making time to be with me today and for writing um, such a great book that gave us the occasion to do this. And I think it's, this is a book that I'm excited about um, for listeners who are listening in, um, in part because it speaks, I think, to lots of different fields. So thank you and welcome, Shellen. Thank you so much, Carla. I'm so glad to be talking to you today. So, Shellen, let's start as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about what brought you to the field. And specifically, how did you come to work on modern China and on kind of the history of science and technology in modern China specifically? I think it was a rather circuitous route. My original interest was in working on the German overseas empire. And one thing then led to another, then led to another. And I found myself suddenly in late Qing China uh, looking at coal. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I know, right? It's one of those stories like yada, 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 and then there it is. So speaking of coal, right, this is really what the book is about. Um, The book opens with two men. One of them is a German geographer that we're going to hear much more about later, who incidentally happens to be the person who coined the term for Silk Road. And the other is a Qing official who we'll also hear more about. Now, these two men shared a vision for the future of a modern China that, as you put it, is defined by technological and industrial development. And coal, as you just mentioned, played a really key role in fueling this development. So we're going to see this issue play out and lots of arguments associated with it in the course of the chapters, in the course of our conversation. But can you say a little bit before we get there about what brought you to um, this topic? So a little bit more specifically, why coal and why coal and industrialization in this period? 
Coal is one of those things that once I started doing archival research, I realized that everyone, whether it's Qing officials, and there is eight volumes of documents related to mining, uh, Qing docs related to mining, but also on the German side, Americans, British, everyone collected lots of materials on coal. And once I started doing research, I realized, well, of course, because it is so essential to the process of industrialization and everyone was interested in it. So there was certainly no shortage of material. And I think by following that uh, thread of research is how I wound up working on coal and why this discourse on coal was so important in the late 19th century. So the project um, is your first monograph and started out as a dissertation. So can you say a little bit about that transition? Were there any major transformations either in the shape of the project, the nature of the project, or in how you were thinking about your own arguments moving from one medium to the other? Um, when I finished my dissertation, I thought, okay, I'm going to do X, Y, Z, and it's going to be um, turned into the book. And then I did X, Y, and Z, and I got back some reader reports, and there, it's actually worse off than before. So then I moved <laughs> it back to uh, original order. And I think a lot of the change is in terms of the framework and in terms of how I framed my argument. So it's not just a narrowly conceived dissertation on a brief span of years, but um, also more broadly, these bigger questions about what was going on in China in the late Qing, um, and why is this such an important juncture in modern Chinese history? So, Shellen, one of the really wonderful things about the book, and this brings us um, right into the book itself so we can start exploring, is, as I mentioned before, the range of kinds of historiographical discourses and arguments and debates that the book contributes to. So it's um, both a work of profound interest for historians of modern China, um, historians of global history, but also for historians of science and technology and engineering, among many, many others. So in the first chapter, you take us through um, some of the major debates that the book is um, contributing to and conversations that it's part of. And these include conversations about China and the world, conversations about coal, modernity, and industrialization, conversations about mining, agriculture, and the political economy of late imperial China, and many, many others. To start us off, how about for you, we talk about what you feel now are some of the most important ways that um, the book is contributing to points of historiography that you feel are really important. So put another way, what for you are some of the most important um, ways that this is speaking to existing conversations that you find particularly important and particularly um, germinal to think with? I think one of the things that uh, really drew me to the late Qing is this is a period when many people were intensely curious about the outside world and were really looking for you know, what are some of the political systems? What are the new technologies? What are some of the um, sciences coming from the West? What are these ideas coming from the West and the rest of the world? And um, it's a tremendously exciting period. And I think one of the things that I feel um, perhaps because of the rather circuitous route that I took to get to the Lei Qing is that um, rather than um, starting with this idea that, okay, I'm only going to be working on the 20th century or I'm only going to be working on the Republican period or the PRC period, I started looking into this idea of the introduction of sciences, particularly of geology, of industrialization, discussions about coal, about modern enterprises. Um, and I realized that many of these things that took place over the course of the 20th century and is so essential to debates about China 
today, um, in fact, had their roots in the late 19th century. And in this exciting intellectual atmosphere where people were open to all these things coming from overseas. Um, and I think that that's probably, if I had to pick any one thing that I feel would contribute to the field is the way that um, I'm kind of looking at all of these different historiographies and saying, hey, it actually all comes together um, here in this in the late 19th century and in a very interesting way that has enormous ramifications for the subsequent history of Chinese industrialization. That's right. And some of those ramifications are going to be playing out not just in the early and mid-20th centuries, but even today. And as we get toward the end of the book, we're going to talk a little bit more explicitly about that then. But let's also talk a little bit um, about how those foundations are laid now. So one of the things that's happening in this crucial period that you're identifying um, and that you just talked about, the 19th century, is a change in the discourse of minerals, right? There's this transformation that becomes really, really important um, that you're pointing to here in Chapter 1 from a kind of pre-modern form of geological knowledge in China, and that I say that as a shorthand for a much, much more rich and complex story, right, that listeners will find in this chapter, to a distinct discourse of minerals as natural resources, now, since this idea of minerals as natural resources, right, is going to have ramifications um, that are pretty profound all the way through this story, and it starts here, can you talk a little bit about the importance of that idea? Um, why, for you, is that idea crucial to what's happening in the book, and why the 19th century? I think, well, one of the things about coal and about other minerals is that this is not a new thing. This did not arrive with Western geologists or geographers. In fact, uh, the Chinese had long ex exploited such resources for various uses, and even um, as early as the, as the Song Dynasty, coal was uh, extensively used for metallurgy as well as for heat in the north part, northern parts of the country. Um, so what I found really interesting is the way that with this arrival of these ideas about industrialization as well as technologies, people with this familiar mineral with things like coal suddenly began to see it as something that is... Um, extraordinarily important for China's place uh, as defined against the rest of the world. And this is something that began to circulate in the late 19th century, the idea that, okay, China, we have enormous deposits of this stuff, and this is one way in which we could rapidly develop and catch up with um, industrialization and with the rest of the world. So one of the major um, factors in shaping the arrival of these new ideas and the subsequent transformation in the discourse in China that you're describing here was the global circulation of people, of ideas, of objects that's happening in this period. And one of the people who is part of this circulation and becomes really important for laying the foundation for the subsequent development of a discourse about coal um, as a kind of natural resource in China is the focus of the second chapter. This is a chapter that focuses on German geographer Ferdinand von Richthofen. This is the German geographer that I mentioned at the very beginning. And he is in China from 1868 to 1972. Now, he embodied a concept, as you um, describe it here in this chapter, of multiple imperialisms. And he's very much part of a larger context of imperial and colonial interest in and of China. So let's start by talking a little bit about that. Um, specifically, what's going on in this period um, that he's part of in terms of German interests in China? And what do we need to understand about German colonial interests in China to understand um, something important about the context that's bringing and keeping Richthofen to and in China? So in the period when he goes with a Prussian mission to Asia and subsequently travels in China, um, the German Empire, the Second Empire, has not yet formed. So in many ways, the Germans felt like they were 
playing catch up to the British and the French. And so they were peculiarly attuned to these processes of industrialization because in many ways that's happening within the German, within the German states. Um, and this is something that Richthofen in his upbringing, in his experiences in Germany is also seeing. At the same time, you're seeing this 19th century, this great age of exploration. So it was became enormously important for scientists, for geologists, and for geographers to make these expeditions to remote parts of the world in order to prove their theories, in order to make their name. And so in, in addition to Richthofen himself that I talk about, I mean, this is also the period when Darwin is traveling on the Beagle for five years around the, the world, uh, when the Americans are also sending out multiple year expeditions, circumnavigating the world. And so you have people who are scientifically interested um, going around the world, collecting natural science and collecting knowledge, but also contributing to the establishment of European empires and imperial interests. Now, one of the factors that's fueling this development of empire um, is geology, right? And geology in this period, as you describe it, really, really clearly here, is developing as an independent discipline that's diverging from geography in Europe and the Americas at this time. Also, during this period of expansion, geology becomes really important to the consolidation of colonial power because, as you put it here, it's aiding in the extraction of mineral deposits that are valuable to the colonizers. So this is very much an important part of um, what's happening um, that we need to right, understand, as you put it in this chapter, to understand what's happening in China. So Richthofen is working in this context, and he's contributing significantly to the study of Chinese geography and geology. Now, he's doing this um, in a series of major writings. There are different kinds of writings that are all having different kinds of significant impacts. These include a, multi, a multi-volume work on China. They include letters from 1870 to 1872 to the Shanghai Chamber of Commerce. And they include maps, two folios of maps on China that were produced in 1885. Let's talk about these maps these were really important not just for what happens after, but also for how we understand mapping and cartography um, and its implications in how China is understood. So um, can you talk to us a little bit about these maps? What for you um, is important about these maps and really any other of his writings that you feel are particularly important to shaping the story? These maps that he published in the 1880s in Europe, so there have been... Jesuits also did surveys in China for the Qing court, and their work were published in maps in Europe. Um, but Richthofen's maps were the first geological maps of China. And if you've ever seen a geological map, it's quite different from a surface map. It's not about the topography. It actually goes beneath the surface to look at where are the different deposits of materials. Um, and uh, to be fair, he wasn't entirely accurate in all of them, but this is a beginning, and this is one way in which he, starting in Europe, but also subsequently in Asia, uh, started to circulate this information and also to circulate this image of China that had previously been, you know, this is this exotic land, this is where silk, this is where porcelain, this is where tea comes from. Um, with these geological maps, suddenly people were thinking of China not just as this uh, source of luxury goods in Europe, but also as a place which has contains enormous deposits of valuable minerals, and including coal, including iron, including other uh, minerals. And so this is where I think uh, really, really important because it was so transformational um, for the image of China, both abroad and also domestically. Um, and so I also 
look at the way that, for a lot of people, looking at Richthofen's maps, many of the Chinese students, even later, they didn't speak German, so they didn't necessarily understand what he was writing in his longer works. But with these maps, they immediately understood that this Western explorer had exposed China's treasures for the rest of the world. And this is the treasure map that's drawing so much Western encroachment and interest to come to China. And it's really interesting, just kind of incidentally as an oral footnote, that this is the same person who becomes very well known um, for coining the language of the Silk Road, right? Terms for, the term Silk Road in German. So it's really interesting to think about him as a pivotal figure in terms of how we relate dimensionality to China, right? We've got depth and we've got surface. And that's just thing. he's just such a fascinating figure um, because of that. Yeah, he is absolutely this. Um, I, I mean, I find his writings really fascinating, and it contains all of these random stuff that is, you know, he likes um, a drink of brandy that he brings from the, or whiskey that he brings from the U.S. Um, he, I think he's managed to sleep maybe four hours a night while he's traveling, uh, keeps intense field notes. Uh, he's writing into the night, and he talks about how when he's traveling in the interior of China in these places where they've never seen a Westerner before, people crowd around and look at him while he's eating. Um, so it's a really interesting guy. I would watch an epic Netflix TV miniseries about him. So just saying, for anyone listening who's a screenwriter. So this also, um, before we move on to the next chapter, um, this also is an important moment in the book for bringing up a theme that recurs throughout the book, and that's the theme of the underground and importance of the underground. So I won't ask you to talk too much about that now, but I want to mark for listeners um, that uh, the importance of the maps in terms of their showing of depth underground and their mapping of the underground is just one way that this idea of the underground is really important to what's happening in the book. So as we turn to chapter two, we turn to one of my favorite chapters for various reasons, (laughs) and this is a chapter that looks at the importance of translation in this period um, to what's going on and to the rendering and engagement with geology Um, geological works, mining, and the search for wealth and power. So the chapter looks at 19th century uh, translations of geological works that are done by missionaries in China, and it focuses on three primary case studies that represent three different approaches to the translation of geology. And this is important um, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book to mention because this chapter is not just taking for granted that we understand what translation is, how it is, and where it is. The chapter is contributing also to, um, I think, really uh, complexifying and giving more richness and multiplicity to what we think about when we think about translation practices more generally. So there's a lot of bigger implications, even just to this chapter um, itself. The three primary case studies um, that the chapter looks at are the case of advanced textbooks of geology and mineralogy, a set of practical mining manuals, and introductory primers of geology. These are all fascinating, um, but I'll ask you specifically to talk about one or two of them. So the advanced textbooks of geology and mineralogy are translations of James Dwight Dana's Manual of Mineralogy and Charles Lyell's Elements of Geology, like the famous um, geological treatise by Lyell. They're produced by American missionary Dr. Um, Daniel Jerome McGowan and by Hua Hanfang. So um, the nature of the practices that produce these translations and the subsequent um, outcome of these translations is really, really interesting. So can you talk a little bit about these? What for you is most interesting about the nature of the translations here and how and how were they used afterwards? Um, and if they weren't widely used, why, um, why was that and what's important about well, the thing about these two translations is that I think someone actually in the 19th century who had to read them in a school described it as eating sawdust. And it's true <laughs> that these are uh, really difficult to read. And part of the reason is because of the 
process of translation, which in, in this period is really a, this collaboration between a um, missionary, in this case, McGowan, uh, who has no back. He's a, he's a medical doctor, and he also maintained a practice um, aside from his work as a translator and a, um, a Chinese collaborator. And what would happen is the, uh, the missionary would orally say uh, what this particular work is about. Then the Chinese collaborator would put it down in uh, classical Chinese. And so ideally this is supposed to be this um, collaborative process and you produce this work that gets at um, this important work. But oftentimes neither the missionary nor the Chinese collaborator have necessarily have backgrounds in the particular topic that they're translating. And also for a number of these missionaries, their quality of their spoken Chinese differ very widely. McGowan's Chinese appear to have been quite poor. Hua um, Hengfang, who's a very, very talented engineer and um, did all sorts of other things during this period, including producing this, in, making this engine, um, basically based on some drawings that he saw in these missionary magazines. Hua um, Hengfang, but he, his English was very poor. So the two of them had enormous difficulties with communication. And this comes out in the prefaces to these two works on geology that he helps to translate. And in the second one, where Hua actually falls ill during the process of translation, he's remarkably candid in the preface about how uh, Hua, uh, about how McGowan still maintained his medical practice. And so sometimes Hua would be sitting around waiting for him to come back from visiting patients all day long. And that he would often, Hua would often have no idea what McGowan was talking about and would be looking at his facial expression to try to figure out what's going on. <laughs> and so, you know, obviously this is not an ideal process of translation. But I think also this, this brings out this question of you know, how we think about translation, uh, what, what, how we define what's a good translation, what's not a good translation, and also about this process that produces something which oftentimes bears no relation to the original work. Um, and I think that this is the question that and, um, I was thinking about as I was laboring through trying to understand, you know, what's going on in this book. Uh, and I have to say, because of the use oftentimes of transliteration, so strings of eight characters for a simple mineral, um, so ko, for example, which in Chinese is mei, um, it becomes in these works transliterated as anthracite. You know, it's multiple characters basically to say anthracite. Um, but it would be pretty much impossible for a Chinese reader to understand what's going on uh, without a lot, a great deal of context. Um, but I started thinking about, well, you know, you have... Why is it that both McGowan and Hua and so many of these Qing officials, why were they interested in these works? If, in fact, sometimes the results are almost incomprehensible and it's such a difficult process. Um, and I think the bigger message is that we're, we need to look beyond just these works, um, just beyond these works as a translation as a linguistic process of going from point A to point B, but also this larger context of why for both the American missionary as well as for these Chinese um, translators, why it's so important that this information about mining and about minerals um, be accessible. So at the end of this chapter, um, you mentioned something I'll just um, put out there for listeners because I think you say it really, really clearly here. One of the reasons that these translations become really important to the larger story of the book is that as a result, at least in part of these translations that include others that um, we haven't talked um, at length about but that are described at length in the chapter, geology became, in your words, further entangled with the role of science in imperialism and the wealth and power of the West. And so this theme of wealth and power is going to recur throughout the book and is really important um, for us to keep in mind. 
Now, you mentioned that Hua was an engineer, and we get a really wonderful accounting of engineers in this process in the next chapter. This is chapter four, which pays special attention to engineers in China, who were the people responsible for the expansion of, again in your words, the first modern Chinese industries, while also promoting European influence on China's future development. Now, um, you talk a lot about, in this chapter, German engineers who worked for Chinese industries. You talk about the ways that they gained a foothold in China in this period, um, their motivations for doing so, right? Why would these men have wanted to be there in the first place? Um, This has a lot to do with railway um, interests, um, interests in the railway and the railroad, among other things. And it brings us to one of the really important points, I think, in this chapter that I'd love if you could open up a little bit. And this is your point about um, the way this helps us understand power, right, and the balance of power in this context and in this period. Because this idea of a balance of power um, or not so balanced, you know, relations of power is an important theme throughout the book. I think this is a good moment to, um, to open up this chapter. So what's the balance of power in this period, in this context, between um, the German government, these engineers, and their Chinese employers? And, and what, for you, is important for us to understand about that balance? Um, what really interested me when I was going through the archives of materials on these engineers is that uh, and here is where uh, translation <laughs> sneaks back in again to these engineers. The German government actually brought them in, brought these engineers, hoping to install them in Chinese industries. And in order to keep it a secret, they were brought in as translation interns mm-hmm. and then put through a quick language course. And then also they tried to set up meetings with important Qing officials so that these engineers could gain employment. And I think this is a very, very important point, is that when we think about these industrialization, it's a very expensive process. And then the question is, you know, who pays for it? And I show in this chapter that the biggest part of the profit um, of these industries is the is in terms of where China bought these heavy machineries for iron foundries, for mines. Um, and that's part of the reason why all the European powers, not the Germans, but also the British, the Belgium, everyone was competing against one another. And the thing about these loans for railroads um, at the time is that part of the terms of such loans was that the uh, loan extender, so whether it is uh, Deutsche Bank or whether it is um, British banks, that they then control the post of head engineer. And that means that these head engineers then brought in other members of other nationals onto their team and also directed these orders, enormously expensive orders of heavy machinery to their home countries, benefiting their industry in the industries in their home countries. And so this is then this if this is this is the reason why these um, Western powers were so interested in the development in the process of industrialization in China because they saw in it enormous profits to be made. Now, in this process of industrialization in China um, and also elsewhere, there's a sizable capital investment that's involved, and you talk about the importance here of state intervention and state subsidies for shaping what's going on. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. um, So um, I think some of the works show on mining, for example, show that there is a certain point where because of low labor costs, it doesn't actually, it's not profitable to overcapitalize. So you don't want to invest in tons of very expensive machinery when you can hire cheap labor to do the same thing. But where you see the importance of the state is that when you have, when you continue using cheap labor, it doesn't lead to further industrialization. And so 
it's with state intervention that allows for a longer trajectory of development rather than just uh, in terms of you know turning a quick profit. And so whether it is these colonial governments, and you see this in the um, German leasehold in Shandong province, or it's with these early Qing enterprises, what we see is that it was very difficult for them to turn a profit in the early years. And this is the part where a lot of state intervention and a lot of state support and also these uh, funding is extremely helpful for the long-term development. Now, the book is contributing not just to how we understand modern China and China in the world, but as I mentioned earlier, and we've talked a little bit about, it's also contributing to the history of science and how we understand, articulate, and narrate um, the history of science in this context. Now, there were very porous boundaries that you describe here between science and industry in the 19th century, and the chapter is, in addition to all the things we've been talking about, it's also making a larger argument about the ways that we tend as historians of science to think of science and applied fields of technology as separate entities. So one of the contributions that this chapter in particular is making is turning our attention to the importance of applied technology, of engineers, in this larger story that we're telling. So do you want to speak a little bit to that also um, as a, a kind of work that this is doing? How does that matter to you, and what do we need to understand about how that's important to your goals for the book? I think one of the things I've been thinking more and more about, even since the book, is the way that... um, For a long time, it was really viewed as, well, Chinese science, um, it wasn't there. And um, part of the reason that people didn't see it there is because they looked in particular places, or they only looked in the way that this is how geology developed in the West, and we don't see that in China, or we don't see that in other parts of Asia. Um, and for me, it was very important to expand this definition of science and also to show the ways in which these engineers, like these earlier explorers, like people like Richthofen, they were really installed in places um, around the world. And oftentimes they went from working for industries to teaching geology um, in uh, these modern schools in late 19th century that were established, um, and it was a pretty seamless transition. So it wasn't just that there is there are scientists and then there are engineers, and these are two separate spheres, but they worked closely together. Now, as the Qing state falls into crisis, right, at the end of um, the 19th and the early 20th centuries, renewed attention is paid to the importance of mining resources to the state, and you describe this in Chapter 5. This crisis brought about a complete overhaul of the legal framework for dealing with mining rights. And so as we talk about Chapter 5, we talk about a context that's going to be perhaps of special importance to listeners and readers who are interested in law and in legal history. There's a lot of really wonderful stuff happening here um, that's around legal history and the history of law. Chapter 5 looks at late Qing reform of mining laws specifically and also the nationwide movement, as you call it here, to reclaim mining rights. So as we saw earlier, Richthofen had helped create an image of China as a land of mining resources to be exploited, right? He wasn't solely responsible for this, but this is an important part of the story. The Chinese response to the foreign scramble for mining concessions that in part results for this from this um, is really interesting, okay? So mining regulations become a point of tension in China. Now, one of the things... Um, that becomes really interesting here um, is the some of the intricacies of Qing mining law, which listeners, trust me, even if you don't think that you're interested in law and legal history, these intricacies are really, really fascinating. Qing mining law, among other things, is asserting the role of the state, okay, the state's role in natural resource exploitation. So let's talk about that. How did it do that? Um, how does the law... Um, strengthen and assert the role of the state in exploiting mining? And what do we need to understand about these laws to understand what was so important about them? 
Um, I think part of the thing that you change um, these laws made a lot more specific the level of state intervention in mining. And so that means that it gives the state the right of um, of monopolizing all deposits within Chinese territory and of the exclusive right of granting these licenses to mine. Um, And this this is actually very, very specific in a way that was never formalized in prior imperial um, legal codes in terms of dealing with mining or mining resources. Um, So this is a very important juncture in the late 19th century when when you see that there was a Qing commission that goes overseas and they're looking at uh, mining law in Europe, they're looking at mining law in the U.S., they're looking at mining law around the world and in in Japan. In fact, they translate the entirety of Japanese mining law into Chinese to consult in this process of legal reform. Um, and the Japanese legal, uh, mining laws actually borrow a great deal also from German codes. So there's very explicit directions on the process you're supposed to apply to the state in order to um, open a mine. You're supposed to go through all of these processes in order to open a mine. Um, and also the, the really interesting thing that I discovered in the process of researching this is the way that a lot of countries around the world were actually interested in this question. And one of the tidbits I picked up is that, in fact, the current U.S. mining law was signed into law in 1872 under President Ulysses S. Grant. Wow. This is still applicable today. Um, so... The U.S. was also interested, and Americans also studied both German, British, and um, laws to see what they could borrow from these precedents. Now, not only, um, and that's fascinating, right, to hear about the history (laughs) of U.S. law, but it's not just modern um, U.S. leadership and policy on mining that's shaped in this period. It's also modern Chinese um, approaches toward mining um, and these kinds of issues. You, you mention in this chapter that this period, this transformation of Qing law, is a watershed change from early modern attitude toward mining that actually continues to influence Chinese leadership today. So for you, are there some particularly important ways that contemporary leadership continues to be influenced by these watershed changes in Qing law? Well, for one thing... Uh, the communist regime today still nominally holds all rights, underground rights, to mineral resources. And so even though we hear a lot in the news about appalling safety records, um, in law and in terms of who can open mines and even who can invest in mines, that's very specific and it's very limited. Um, so we have then continued to see the ways that the Chinese state enforces a uh, state power and monopoly on mineral rights. And also today you see in the way that Chinese state and um, companies invest in overseas and African and South American mineral deposits and natural resources, the way that they are applying the lessons learned from the 19th century um, from Western encroachment in China and applying it overseas in order to gain exclusive rights to these mineral deposits. So another important point that this chapter is making, um, and I, I will just mention it without asking you to talk um, really substantively about it, but you emphasize here the importance of a provincial level movement to reclaim mines. So a lot of this is happening at the level of the province, and um, that's important in part because the book, um, I just wanted to kind of mark the fact that the book is really careful in its treatment of these entities and its mapping of these um, centers of or locations of power. And so when the book is talking about the state, it's really sensitive to what that means at which you know, point in the story. And here it's important that a lot of this movement is happening at the level of the province. Um, and that becomes, a, a, I, I think, a very important part of the story. So as we move to chapter 6, we move into a chapter that traces Chinese views on mining 
from the late imperial period through the Republican era. Now, this time frame, as we'll see shortly, is important because, among other things, one of the kinds of argumentative work that this chapter does is to help us rethink a little bit some of the ways that some you know, previous or other work on mining and geology in China has tended to kind of separate these or, or not necessarily pay attention to late imperial and republican as part of the same story. And so one of the things that this chapter is doing is making them part of the same story in a new way. In the late Qing, control over natural resources became, as you put it here, a symbol of sovereignty over foreign encroachment. As part of this, new metaphors start entering um, the discourse that become really interesting, right? And so for any listeners who are especially interested in rhetoric and narrative and metaphor as it shapes practice and thought are going to be particularly drawn, I think, to chapter six. Geology becomes an important metaphor in late Qing and Republican debates over the empire and the new nation state. So one of the really interesting ways this happens is by a comparison between China and a poor man sitting on hidden treasures while thieves tried to steal them. So I am absolutely incapable of reading any kind of accounting of the phrase treasure or hidden treasure without asking the person who's going to talk about it because I'm obsessed with treasure. So Helen, um, can you speak to this, um, this idea, the importance of this metaphor of hidden treasure um, and thieves, and for you, what's most interesting about what's going on here? Well, one of the things I noticed as I got into this is that some of these people writing about these hidden treasures, about China's boundless underground treasures, uh, they were very unlikely characters, uh, including I, I talk about how uh, one of the people writing about the importance of mining sciences is the Liqing reformer, revolutionary, and uh, Confucian iconoclast uh, Kang Youwei. So this is a guy who is a you know very very well known. Um, intellectual in the late Qing period. Later on in life, he travels a great deal. He was very popular with overseas Chinese. And he also, he traveled in style. I mean, this is a man who is used to staying in great, wonderful five-star hotels while he's overseas traveling. So not the kind of guy who you would expect to write about mining necessarily. And I think this is one of the things that I realized how these ideas about Chinese mineral deposits began to filter outward. So we're not talking about a few officials making uh, industrial, building industrial enterprises or a few people who are interested in geology per se. We're talking much more broadly about this idea that percolates throughout late Qing, early 20th century writings about the idea that China has these enormous unexplored treasures and that geology and mining is one way to access that and that if only they could access it then this would solve so many of the problems so many of these um you know china as this poor man in the late um 19th century in the early 20th century with all of these problems with a collapsing state that these underground resources re- is really the way to solve all of these problems That's right. So mining becomes a metaphor for reform. Mining becomes key to China's wealth and power. It's a really interesting way. You talk in this chapter about the ways that Republican-era geologists are trying to construct a very nationalist history of geology, and you describe the tension here between, on the one hand, the kind of need for international recognition, and on the other hand, this nationalist agenda for advancing Um, as you describe here, traditional knowledge, and a specifically Chinese science. Can you talk about that tension, again, between the need for international recognition and this nationalist agenda? Yeah, so one of the really interesting things about a lot of these science journals in the 20s and 30s is that they would have two different indexes. Um, And oftentimes there would be from the front, you would see an English index or sometimes also English and French. And then from the back, all the content would be in Chinese. Um, And so, so clearly... 
there is a strategy to um, appeal to an international crowd that this is a geology as an international science. Um, but at the same time, there would be differences in what is said in Chinese-only prefaces versus the English prefaces, um, and also in terms of um, how these communities are, the, the geologists presented themselves when it's exclusively to an international audience versus a domestic audience. So a lot of very important work in terms of tracing geological knowledge in the ancient classics come from the 20s, 30s, from this period. At the same time, they're doing a great deal of work on the geological survey of China and focusing very much on the uh, exploration of mineral resources like iron and coal. Great. Thank you, Shalyn. So as we move to, um, toward the conclusion of our conversation, we also move toward the end of the book and specifically to the epilogue. The epilogue does a lot of different kinds of work that are all worth talking about. And we'll only have time to talk about just a couple of those, but I'll just mention for listeners, the epilogue, among other things, talks about um, historiography and ideas about the meanings of science in modern China. Um, it talks about the importance of continuing to undermine this old failure narrative of late Qing science. And it talks about the ways that the book contributes to um, really um, complexifying and um, critiquing and adding richness to this great divergence narrative that has dominated so much of the discourse and teaching that we do about um, China, global history, and industrialization in this period. As um, a part of this larger story, you talk about your own experience in 2008 traveling to Anyuan. This is relatively brief in the epilogue, but it sounds completely fascinating. So I wonder if you would be willing to talk with us um, about that a little bit. Specifically, why go to Anyuan in 2008? And for you, what was most important about that experience that you brought back to how you were understanding the project? Um, well, Anyuan is still a working coal mine. And because I actually did not have access to the coal mine, but of course, you know, um, I hired a taxi. It took me into the, the company grounds. I'm, I'm not sure that it was entirely legal, but I really wanted to see um, this town that figures so centrally. This is the place where many of the German engineers that I look at worked in the um, 1890s, 1900s. And this is also the place where later on in the 20s, the end of early Communist Party organized the miners. Um, so it's a very important part of revolutionary history of the history of the Communist Party in China. Um, and so really fascinating place. So I wanted to get a sense of it. And it <laughs> I have to say, I cannot lie. I did not think it was a very attractive town. I mean, it may have been because it was raining, but there were smokestacks. It was just, um, it seemed a very unattractive town. And the revolutionary monument uh, that opened during the Cultural Revolution in town at the time when I visited was not open. I think they were undergoing renovations. So I went to the grounds of the coal mines and I looked at some of the old buildings that are now shuttered and um, enclosed. Um, but you can kind of, you know, stuck my head on the fence and looked in. Um, and so I thought, you know, this is a in this one place, there are so many different parts of history um, stretching all the way from the late Qing through the 20th century. And I wanted to just get a sense of it. Um, and I also thought that it's very emblematic of the fact that these mining towns are not usually the most attractive places. And yet this place is so central to China's industrialization and subsequently also to the history of revolution in modern China. So the book closes with a discussion of the price of wealth and power, and specifically a discussion of the environmental consequences and the ongoing environmental consequences of this reliance on coal and mining. So the end of the book integrates this larger story into a conversation about how we move forward and what 
importance this story has and this historical um, treatment has for understanding what it might mean to um, move forward um, in this light and then what the consequences are of this for how we might approach an attentiveness to environmental um, discourse and situations here. This is a very long-winded way of asking you, <laughs> can you talk about this? Um, for you, what's important about the environmental consequences of this story and the importance of this story for understanding and motivating action in light of those consequences? The difference, I think, today's China versus at the end of the 19th century. So many of these views about economic growth, about development of exploiting these natural resources, which in the late 19th century, in the 1900s, were described as these hidden treasures that were waiting to be explored, exploited is that um, at that time when these views developed, it was a very serious moment for China. And a lot of the discussion, and they were not exaggerating, was that, um, I think one quote from a contemporary newspaper is that the biggest question of the 20th century is whether China is going to continue to exist as an independent state. And so at that time, it was enormously important for China to fully explore and also to control these mineral resources to retain its independence. We're in a very, very different situation today. And I think part of the ramifications of that is that this view that developed under these um, intense pressures of the early 20th century um, should change as a result of change China's changing circumstances. So part of the problem that we see today is that more and more people are realizing that this kind of intensive use of these natural resources is not sustainable, that is causing all kinds of pollution, which is leading to even larger problems. And so the problems today is not foreign encroachment, but the fact that the continued heavy use of coal and, uh, and also these um, um, environmentally damaging mining practices would ultimately result in far greater and long-lasting damage to China than any of this um, foreign encroachment. So, Shellen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and to talk um, for us about the book. There's a million billion um, stuff. <laughs> there are a million billion things that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, but given that, are there any specific points, or is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, I think there's one thing where when I decided to write on this topic, I signed up for an introductory to geology course. And as part of the course, we went on these field trips. They drove us in vans around New Jersey looking at geological formations. And um, and at the time, I thought, oh, man, I'm really beat by this. After a full day of being driven around in a van, I was really tired. And it was very, very difficult, hard work. And as a result, I realized when later reading Richthofen and looking at these reports of mining engineers is the way that the sense of how it's such a difficult task. Mm -hmm. And the reason why people sustained in their effort is because they really saw it as really very, very important. And this is true of Richthofen, who um, is famous. He coined the word Silk Road, but also for subsequent Engineers who are not known today, but at the time they also recognized that they were doing work that was of world historical importance, that they were doing work that was going to aid in China's industrialization and development. Um, and I think that this is one of those things where it's uh, so much dead material on a page. Um, but um, I would say that, you know, go out there and take a look or go visit Pingxiang and <laughs> look at a coal mine because it's, um, you do get a sense of place and of these materials that you can't from just reading about it. That's a really, really fantastic point to end on, I think. Um, well, I have one more question for you, so you're not <laughs> done yet, but I think you've just highlighted something that, 
um, increasingly many humanists and social scientists, historians specifically, are trying to move our attention to, which is the importance of making as a way of learning about something, as a way of studying something, the importance of um, making your body move in a particular way, do something as a way to try to get at an understanding of um, something having to do with the past, something having to do with history. So the embodied nature of academic work um, is something that I think you're showing us a path forward to really work into um, how we think about what it is that we do and how we practice it in a much more focused and much more self-reflexive kind of a way. So thank you. And so, Shelley, now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book, what's next for you? What are you working on now? Well, I'm continuing this trend of looking at the geosciences, and um, I'm currently working on a project looking at geopolitical discourse in 20th century China, um, not only of, well, geography, but also ideas about agricultural settlement, about frontiers, um, and looking at the way that all of this changed the, the conceptualization of the Chinese territory. Awesome. Best of luck with that project. Call me when you write that book because I'll talk to you about that also. Um, I, that sounds like a great project. <laughs> and Shellen, thank you again. Um, it's really been a pleasure and I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Carla. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time. <laughs>